In a Philosophize First and for the last episode of this season, we are joined by a very special guest, Jeff Gomez. Jeff is one of the world's leading experts in narrative design, and he's worked on developing vast fictional story worlds and producing highly successful transmedia franchises, consulting on projects such as Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, and Spider-Man, to name but a few. Jeff is CEO of Starlight Runner and currently a producer on the global rollout of the Ultraman franchise. We wanted Jeff to join us on the podcast as the creator of the theory of the collective journey, and we'll be talking about that by way of this week's film, chosen by Jeff, the 2016 classic, Arrival. So, Philosophize, we are back. How are you doing, Matt? I'm good. How are you, Dave? I'm absolutely super, and I... It's not just the two of us today, is it? No. <laughs> hey there, I'm Jeff Gomez. Hello, Jeff. Oh, so good for you to come on the podcast. Thank you yeah. so much. Uh, thank you. It's um, uh, a manifestation of will because I'm a fan <laughs> and I basically demanded to be put on your podcast. <laughs> uh, now, that manifestation of will, I'm sure we'll be coming back to that at some point during today. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, Jeff, so we're going to be talking about 2016's Arrival, which was your choice. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about why you picked this film? Uh, I, I think it's an exquisite film. It's a, a, mm. a, a beautiful film that, um, uh, that hit me at just the right time because part of my job is to think about how people uh, interrelate, how they get along, and how they do that at a kind of cosmic scale. Um, mm. uh, entire populations, right? Um, I yeah. work in the entertainment industry, so uh, when someone puts out a movie, they need for uh, not just some Americans to go see it. They need for lots and lots, millions of Americans to go see the movie, and mm. they need um, nowadays for many people across the world uh, to see uh, uh, the movie, to want to see the movie, right? Mm. Um, uh, so. Um, uh, narrative, story, the way that, that the story is told matters because um, uh, if story is told in the right way, uh, vast numbers of people can, can truly uh, want to go uh, experience that, that narrative. Arrival mm. is, is essentially about that and connects with me in a powerful way uh, uh, because um, what if there are so many things to interfere with story, so many things to baffle us and try and break us apart? Um, what can we do with narrative to transcend that mess? And Arrival essentially answers the question, uh, which is what the best science fiction does. What time is it? It's time to open that bottle you've been hiding. You cracked something, didn't you? Yeah, come here. Take a look at this section. It seems to be talking about time. There's a symbol for time. Is it everywhere? So what is this? A formula for faster than light travel? Who can tell? There are too many gaps. Nothing's complete. Then it dawned on me. Right here. 
stop focusing on the ones. Look at the zeros. How much of this is data? How much of it is negative space? So I measured it. 0.0833 recurring. Perhaps you'd like that as a fraction. So, Jeff, um, to kick us all off, um, why not give us a little bit of an overview of the film? Uh, sure thing. I'm going to talk as if everyone uh, kind of knows the film, that, that we're not worried about spoilers here. So if you have not Absolutely seen not. Arrival, go ahead and, and watch it first, <laughs> uh, mm. because I'm going to tip it off right away. Um, yeah, and film... this, one, it, this one is one that does change very significantly on second viewing. It yeah. sure does. Absolutely. The film uh, essentially starts with a, a flash forward. Um, uh, we see the life of uh, Louise and her young daughter. She's raising this beautiful, loving uh, relationship uh, that, uh, that ultimately ends uh, tragically because the little girl uh, dies. The, the viewer perceives that this is the past and that Louise, played by Amy Adams, is a professor at college and lives a kind of quiet, subdued life, at least until her students abandon her because everyone is realizing that there has been a planetary invasion. Well, that, I've just got to say, that scene in the, in the room, that's what our normal lectures are like anyway. I wouldn't have noticed <laughs> <it again. laughs> uh, That is true, having taught a few myself. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, we learn that uh, that in the past, Louise has uh, assisted the United States government with uh, uh, translations and, uh, and international communications, but that her work was kind of corrupted and used to deal harm, to wage war. And so she has withdrawn from that kind of activity. But the army arrives again in the form of uh, Forrest Whitaker's colonel who um, needs Amy, uh, Amy's character, Louise, to kind of figure out what these aliens want. They, they are entirely and completely alien. And, uh, and she, who understands language in this incredibly rich and complex way, may be the only person in the world who could uh, help uh, the, the government understand what the aliens want. They recruit her. She is teamed with Jeremy Renner's uh, Ian Donnelly. Uh, and they uh, they enter the the craft and begin uh, what to me is an absolutely riveting effort to communicate with these aliens. In the process, the very act of learning their language begins to alter Louise's brain, and she slowly uh, starts to realize that her memories are in fact flash forwards. She is remembering things that are happening in the future. And the, the aliens are trying to help her, even as the whole world panics and escalates their uh, uh, you know, suspicions and, uh, and anxieties about this planetary invasion. She is being taught how to perceive time in a different way in order to gather together the pieces of the puzzle that could uh, help us understand these beings and resolve this crisis without the world being destroyed mm -hmm. yeah that's it yeah. i could listen to you talk about that film forever that's that was, <laughs> that was really nice could i touch on on one thing that immediately jumps out about what you were saying and you have seen the film um and probably multiple times i would imagine you're obviously led 
having done that, to talk about the, the very opening scene, that it's a flash forward. But on first watch, of course, because of the language of film that we're so used to, you conceive them first as flashbacks. So you conceive that um, there's this woman, Louise Banks, this linguist, who's living, as you said, a very quiet life. The film tries to make you think, so to speak, that that is because she's got this tragedy in her past. She was with a guy, they had a daughter, the guy left, the daughter died. And you see this lovely little montage. I mean, I say lovely, it's horrific and lovely. But, yeah, you know, the, right. her with the little baby, then then playing with a little girl with the tickle guns. Hmm. There's two quick cuts of, you know, when she's a teenager, I love you, I hate you. Uh, and then finally, yeah. that horrible, devastating scene in, in the hospital bed where the, where she's so ill, she can't talk and, and walks away. So you're led through that first time you watch the film to see it in, in a certain way. And then, of course, the big reveal is, as you so rightly said, she's taught to conceive time in a very different way. And there's that kind of intro that she speaks. You know, I used to think this was the beginning of our story. All the clues are there, like in the best films, yeah, from the very beginning. Yes. Um, memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We're so, <laughs> so bound by time, by its order. But now I'm not so sure if I believe in beginnings and endings. And I suppose, for me, the, the emotional heft of this film, and I think this... This was the thing that really jumped out at me when I first watched it, was the fact that when it's revealed to her this is a flash forward and that she hasn't really understood what these, where these images were coming from all along. So when she's kind of like caught up in those moments of seeing these things, which we take to be sorrow, it's actually for her confusion. What are these images? What am I thinking about? Mm -hmm. And she suddenly begins to realise, along with everything else, that this is her future. And That's this right. is the crucial point. And yet she still goes on to have that relationship with the guy and still goes on to have that baby and still wants to live that life and have that little girl. Oh, I'm choking up now. Um, <laughs> even, even though she knows how it's going to end. And for me, this really reminded me of um, the Nietzschean concept of amor fati, loving your fate. And That's I just right. want to read a, a little section. He writes this. My formula for human greatness is amor fati, i.e. the love of fate, that you do not want anything to be different, not forwards, not backwards, not for all eternity, not just to tolerate necessity, still less to conceal it, but to love it. And that's a really, really difficult thing to think about until you see this film. Yeah, until you see this film and you see, you know, despite the tragedy that's going to happen, that you would want that life to come into existence and live those, I mean, what is she, 18 years with that young girl and, and, and see her develop, even though you know it's going to end in tragedy. Nietzsche puts this amor fati in a number of ways, but in one way he puts it in gay science where he first introduces the term. He puts it as a demon. What if someday or night a demon were to steal into your loneliest loneliness to say to you, this life that you now live and have lived you will have to live again and again forever. And he asks, what would you do? Would you fall on the ground and start gnashing your teeth? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to long for nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation? Now you know the future. You know the tragedies you're going to live through. Would you curl up on the floor and die? 
or would you embrace them and live through them again? I was just thinking what, what you guys thought of that reading of that aspect of the film. It's funny, you look at the film and there's so much that is flawless about it from a narrative perspective. One might almost think, you know, Villeneuve, the director, he's cheating a little at the beginning because how could Louise have these memories uh, of, of the future <laughs> now here at the beginning of the movie? She has not encountered the aliens yet. So what's happening? Well, there are a couple of, of uh, I think, uh, reasons why we are allowed to see the life of the young girl here at the beginning of the, the movie. Uh, uh, first of all, um, uh, it, it's accompanying a, a voiceover that is clearly from, uh, uh, you know, the future. So, so Louise yeah. is speaking to us uh, from essentially after the story's over in, in, in a certain respect. And therefore, her words are being illustrated by this flash forward, which perhaps is her past at that point. And, and second of all, Villeneuve needs to show us how exquisite this life really was, why it's, yeah, it's worth it. living. Yeah. Mm. Of course, she's going to have that child. She couldn't bear to not have that story play out. Uh, what could be more beautiful? Even the darkest times are going to, you know, result in, in this incredible, timeless relationship. And what's interesting is that we even have a, a sacrificial lamb uh, for Jeremy Renner's character, Ian. It's unacceptable. He yeah. can't. He's gnashing his teeth, isn't he? Daddy did. Oh, Hannah, honey, your daddy didn't leave you. You're gonna see him this weekend. He doesn't look at me the same way anymore. It's my fault. I told him something that he wasn't ready to hear. What? Believe it or not, I know something that's going to happen. I can't explain how I know, I just do. And when I told your daddy, he got really mad. And he said I made the wrong choice. What? What's going to happen? It has to do with that. Uh, a really rare disease. And it's unstoppable. Kind of like you are. You're swimming. And your poetry and all the other amazing things that you share with the world. I am unstoppable. So I think the thing that interested me the most is the challenge to the idea of maths as some sort of universal language. It's interesting because you get that flash forward to her book, The Universal Language, but the universal language isn't mathematics. It's this thing that the aliens have that we don't have. Yeah, and uh, indeed, which... I think at one point, Matt, don't they 
isn't they? Like, they don't understand our algebra. I think the it's yeah, it's brilliant. There, so that, like, that, yeah, they mm-hmm. they they do that thing that you know they do in Star Trek, which is where they start sending basic mathematical problems. Or actually, no, the thing they really compare it to is Contact, isn't it? Um, the mm. the film based on the Carl Sagan novel, which is that it is um, building up from basic mathematical principles. So you start off with mathematical things. That's the that's the fundamental building point of. Uh, cross communication, whereas um, we have a linguist. This is a much more linguistic view of it, and uh, Louise takes them through. You know, I am what my this is my name. I am walking. I am I am walking far. I am walking far while wearing shoes. You know, the sort of basic structure and syntax is mm-hmm. the way to do it. There isn't a shortcut through mathematical um, ideas, which to me is, is much more um, instinctively true because by the time we get to the level of mathematics that they're talking about which is astrophysics and theories of number and fibonacci sequences and so forth there's been an awful lot of abstract theory that's gone into that it's not something natural you've got there so the idea that we could just start sending you know our cultures theories of mathematics at another alien race and them understand it um even though quite seems you know even though it's quite popular i like how this film challenges that because it just it it just wouldn't work that way would be far too different to be able to find common ground on on something that abstract i think that's why they they made them septopods uh, mm. there's nothing that is a septopod <laughs> you know <laughs> that's on, a really good Earth. point i hadn't thought about that yeah um uh, so so the math is incongruous um <laughs> you know um it is fascinating because they are these are are warm aliens they they um they seem uh, emotional. They're communicating with with signs and symbols, um, a mm. language. They care. They care about themselves. Obviously, their mission is one of self-preservation. But they also understand how intrinsic humanity is to their self-preservation and, and mm. how humanity needs to get its act together. Um, if, if, uh, if there's going to be, uh, and I love this about the uh, 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 the the movie the uh, the notion of the the zero sum game or not non zero sum game uh, mm. the win win but more sciency. Um, <laughs> <you know. Yeah. laughs> There's that lovely conversation that Banks and Donnelly have in the uh, in the helicopter when they're heading off and um, uh, Donnelly, who's introduced as a theoretical physicist, I mathematician, he reads out a section of her book about language being the foundation of civilization. It's the glue, hold everything together, and it's the first weapon drawn in a conflict, foreshadowing what's going to happen later on when, mm. when they get confused over the word weapon and is it a tool? No, it's actually language and how it changes the brain. But anyway. Sure, sure. Had this been a true alien invasion, what would have been the first thing the aliens would have done? Shut down the global communications grid. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, you yeah. Know, they would have made us incapable of communicating with each other. Um, instead, we uh, did that to each other uh, in, in the face of the aliens. Yeah, yeah that's so- true. Yeah. Sorry, I couldn't hear what you were saying. Language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds the people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. Louise, this is uh, Ian Donnelly. Louise Banks, Ian Donnelly. It's quite a greeting. Yeah, well, you wrote it. It's the kind of thing you write as a preface. Uh, dazzle them with the basics. Yeah, it's great. Even if it's wrong. 
is wrong. Well, the cornerstone of civilization isn't language, it's science. Ian is a theoretical physicist from Los Alamos. You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? And beyond that, how did they get here? Are they capable of faster than light travel? Are they, you know, all that list of questions that, you know, go over, starting with a series of just handshake binary sequences. How about we just talk to them before we start throwing math problems at them? So Donnelly thinks this is, you know, it's wrong. The cornerstone isn't language, it's science. Mm. And, she, and he starts going on about all these questions. And, you know, she, she keeps having to pull everybody back, doesn't she? Everybody yeah, wants right. to just jump straight in. And she goes, look, we really need to just talk to them first, she says. And then she's always having to explain to people why communication will be fraught and problematic. There's a, there's a great image later on when they talk about if we were trying to start communicating through the game of chess, everything would be a game. Uh, Weber comes back with that classic, if all you have is a hammer. You know, everything looks like a nail. That was a good mention on contact there, you know, because that is kind of the way in which science tends to see, you know, that maths is primary, that that will be the way in which we communicate. And this film flips all of that on its head. What's this term here? Mum. Mom. Hmm? Sweetie. Uh, what's this term for that thing? Like a like a technical term? Where we make a deal and we both get something out of it. Uh, compromise. No. Like it's a competition. Mm -hmm. But both sides end up happy. Like a win-win. More science than that. If you want science, call your father. Uh, in the early aughts, I began to realize that story itself was, you know, in the process of changing. When when we think about story, uh, uh, per mm -hmm. particularly the Hollywoodization of, of story, we think of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, which uh, is rooted in prehistoric humanity, uh, this notion that we are raised from infancy in this relatively safe and closed environment, but that ultimately we must journey out of it to sustain ourselves, to survive, to bring back food and perhaps other people to our, our tiny community, um, and that that world is an extraordinarily dangerous place. And so uh, we need mentors to kind of train us to survive, uh, make us a little less afraid, and, and give us the tools we need to, to get out there. Uh, perhaps the gods will help us. <laughs> and we journey forth and we, we take on all these challenges. We, we bring in allies, we confront our enemies. There is usually physical or psychological violence in the process, right? And ultimately, we grab the boon, the treasure, that we need to bring back home and furnish to our, our community. And in doing so, we are heroic, right? Mm. It's a circle, the eternal return um, of Eliade. Uh, and um, the issue that I started seeing with the hero's journey is that um, uh, the lessons that uh, our, our young hero, our Hollywood hero, who is, is often portrayed as, you know, kind of... Um, uh, you know, a, a white dude, 
<laughs> um, <laughs> are um, are pretty specific, and uh, and they are about the assertion of right on wrong, right? Because what what's taught to us as right is going to keep us alive, right? It's going to to cause us to persist, to survive. Anything that gets in the way of that, you know, we have to assert our rightness on that wrongness. Um, and we will learn a few lessons along the way. But in essence, so many stories are about this preservation of a certain intrinsic values and asserting those values against counter values. What I saw at the beginning of the 21st century was that all of us uh, were able to determine our own fates by essentially asserting uh, our rightness uh, out into the world. We became broadcasters. Right, social media uh, began to enable, uh, particularly those without a voice, to to assert their their voices, um, to express their their desires, their their will, and um, and at first it was kind of fun, right? Because we all found our niches, we all gathered together in chat rooms, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all gravitated to like-minded people. But then uh, what happened was uh, our rightness began to atomize. Uh, we began to disagree with each other and say, no, no, I I'm more right than you are. <laughs> um, and um, and we, we began to butt heads. So, so the problem is that um, in instead of a, a small community in a cave going out and, and venturing a great distance to encounter someone that you disagree with, um, they were right there on your Facebook wall. Yeah. And this was uh, creating uh, a kind of pervasive uh, uh, communication chaos. And I began to get uh, uh, concerned. Uh, in, in one sense, it allowed for us to, to operate like, um, like those murmurations of tremendous flocks of birds, right? And you began to get uh, these spontaneous self-organized movements that, um, that didn't even need a leader in order for everyone to kind of um, uh, uh, behave in, in like-minded ways. And that way you saw the Arab Spring, you know, yeah, that's a good and, example. And, yeah. and, and, and things like Black Lives Matter or the, the you know, the 2% or, or, or things like that, Occupy Wall Street, uh, these interesting uh, uh, movements. Um, but then there, there came to be these kind of bad actors, these, these people who, um, uh, uh, started to use um, bots and, and other kinds of uh, 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 technological processes to disrupt our our sense of reality and and start asserting our rightness on each other, uh, turning uh, like-minded people against one another. Uh, you know, people with the same values were were starting to argue with with one another. I, I became concerned but also fascinated because this gave rise to a new modality of narrative, which I call collective journey. Collective journey is nonlinear. It's trans-platform communication, and it's disrupted this hero's journey model. And so I, I began to wonder about what um, uh, components 
of, of storytelling were necessary to essentially teach us a better collective behavior, um, uh, ways to create the non-zero-sum gain. If we look at the way we communicate to each other as a as a kind of unfolding narrative, which can result in the sharing of ideas that manifest themselves into reality. Look at the birth uh, of the alt right, um, the the Tea Party in in the United States. The the notion that people were sharing with one another this anger and resentment about the fiscal responsibility of the United States government. And the fact that working class people were were being you know marginalized, ignored. Uh, at first, that's just a lot of chit chat. You know, people mm. are, are are pissed off and and uh, voicing uh, their disgruntlement to one another. But ultimately, this manifested itself into a movement, a movement that seemed silly at first, right? Uh, but then yeah. they started getting themselves elected. <laughs> and ultimately, it, it resulted in things like uh, the, the, the rise of these populists, uh, uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, you know, these people from around the world uh, uh, started manifesting themselves. That's a story, uh, guys, that even though it starts with what people perceive to be just bits and bobs on bulletin boards or Facebook pages, ultimately manifest into these sweeping global narratives. So and you get a kind of mythos building up there, don't you? You mentioned Trump there being, if you like, born out, but doesn't that still kind of have the hero's journey about it? Because, you know, Trump kind of, for these people, emerges as a kind of hero who's going to lead them out of the morass. So, you know, part, I mean, it's even there, isn't it? Drain the swamp, pass through the swamp. What good journey film doesn't have them going through the a swamp of eternal sorrow or the swamp of deadly death or the swamp <laughs> of whatever. The story that he tells is that of the hero's journey. Only I can save you. But um, given to his own devices, <laughs> um, mm. uh, he never would have made it. He never would have gotten there. It is only the confluence of colossal numbers of people and the actions of those who understood how to impact the, the communal narrative that placed that hero on the throne. I, re I really like that. And I think that's a far superior way of looking at it than the, the main way that I'm familiar with people talking about these bulletin boards is through the idea of anonymity and sort of it being nebulous and no one's really doing it because it's anonymous. And I don't mean the organization, although that's obviously related, but actually saying, right. no, it's a collective narrative, i.e. the individual, there are individuals invo involved in the creation of this narrative, and they're responsible for that narrative. So we do have to take responsibility for our actions, but at the same time, not accepting Trump's lie of a hero's journey. He has risen on the back of a wave of loads of different stories coming together to, to bring that. I think that's a really good, um, really interesting way of, of thinking about how these things happen through a process that we all have in common, but but that which isn't universal either. It's not it's not reduced to the one universal. So, but but see, there's there's the rub because uh, in some ways the hero's journey is is not serving us. Mm. <laughs> um, you know that that aspect, uh, the the fact that a world as dense and complex and and filled with all of these diverse voices. 
uh, can be saved by a single individual who has mm. a highly specified agenda is not healthy for the world. Mm. Um, and, um, and the beauty of arrival, to bring it all home, <laughs> mm. is that uh, you see these two narratives it, um, you know, kind of competing with each other for a while. What, what is the response of the militaristic nations uh, of the world, even ours? It is, well, something's landed outside the cave. It, it yeah. seems really dangerous. And all our training, everything about what we've ever known is to become uh, highly defensive and to prepare uh, uh, to do battle with it, right? Mm. After all, uh, the villain must be defeated. Whatever's up there has to be wrong, um, <laughs> and, and we're going to assert our rightness on it. And and here we have this this young woman who understands something fundamental. And to me, it's one of my favorite themes of of the movie, which is uh, to know others is to perceive the world differently. To know others mm. is to perceive the world differently. In, in other words, I leave my cave, <laughs> and, and and when I make an effort to look at the uh, look at the world through the eyes of the the people I'm encountering, I, I can understand where they're coming from. I, I can understand their concerns. I can even understand their anger, um, uh, or, or or the the danger that they pose. And it makes me able to empathize. It makes me able to be able to, to think about uh, uh, solutions, non-sciencey, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, 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 the non-zero-sum game. During the movie, one of the characters, Halpern, refers to salami tactics, <laughs> dividing your opposition in order to, to face a smaller, uh, weaker enemy right? Mm. Look at what's happened to our world, particularly in the wake of arrival, at a post-arrival. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you, 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 you have uh, these, these factions uh, that are doing exactly that, you, you know, uh, some of them posing as heroes um, who are uh, essentially creating uh, divides between us, asserting their right on our wrong when we thought that we were a single people. <laughs> Or, or aspired to be a single people, um, uh, they've atomized our rightness. They've atomized our rightness. And um, uh, we need to, to understand how to reconcile. And so uh, the, the lesson of the film, to know others is to perceive the world differently, allows us to make these, uh, these psychological shifts um, so that we can uh, affect repairs to the system. And the key to that reconciliation is language. Yeah. But I want to ask you a question. That kind of conversation also teases us because uh, I think it's the CIA operative who, who mentions all of this or, you know, and he says, we are a world without a single leader. And he, yeah. seems, to be, he seems to be saying, right, wouldn't it be easy if we had a mega hero? Yeah, a single that's leader. Right. That then it would. Have, yeah, but that's that, a good but point. he misses the point completely about what's going on. I, I don't think that's it's there. Right. But but um, but uh, Louise later says, you know, do I have to talk to this guy? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah no, he, that, that's it precisely. Of, Why does he say single leader instead of a world government? No, those are two very different ideas. And he seems to be, it seems to be teasing us there with that that's the solution. But that isn't the solution you're talking about, Jeff, is it? It is not. In fact, it is the opposite <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of the solution. The solution, obviously, is that these, these septopods can't even communicate with us if there's just going to be one person. Our, our focus is on uh, uh, Louise, but Louise in no way can do it herself. She needs the, the data, the information that's coming in from all over the world, and she needs the guy who is most likely to throw bombs at these aliens, the Chinese general. And without them, we are lost. I don't want to take away from your success in there. But Dr. Banks, is this really the right approach? Trying to teach him how to speak and read? That's got to take longer. You're wrong. It's faster. Everything you're doing there, I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against us? So you're going to have to give me more than that. Kangaroo. What is that? In 1770, Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia and he led a party into the country and they met the Aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch and he asked what they were and the Aborigines said, kangaroo. And the point is? It wasn't until later that they learned that kangaroo means I don't understand, so. I need this so that we don't misinterpret things in there, otherwise this is going to take 10 times as long. I can show that for now. But I need you to submit your vocabulary words before the next session. Yeah. And remember what happened to the Aborigines. A more advanced race nearly wiped them out. It's a good story. Thanks. It's not true. But it proves my point. So, Jeff, look, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. But, look, before we go, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, on the, uh, on the entertainment side, I'm working on a project called Ultraman, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful because Ultraman is a, a kind of a Japanese superhero. Uh, I, I so enjoyed him uh, when when I was uh, a kid. He's um, uh, he fights giant monsters and protects the world from uh, the incursions of of aliens and and uh, immense creatures, kaiju. <laughs> um, and um, and in bringing Ultraman back, he was a character born in the 1960s. Um, uh, in bringing Ultraman back, uh, the, one of the challenges I've been facing is. Well, how do you rethink uh, this this kind of formulaic, you know, uh, children's uh, uh, entertainment into something that lends itself to collective journey narrative? What is the universe of Ultraman like? What is it to be an Ultraman? <laughs> um, mm. and, and what do the uh, the kaiju symbolize if they are not simply evil? Uh, how does the world's uh, uh, you know ecosystem respond to the the existence of giant silver alien dudes and and uh, and I immense beasts? Um, you know, so that's that's a lot of fun and uh, it's catching on. We're we're being we're highly effective at uh, reintroducing uh, Ultraman to the world on a slightly more serious front. 
I, uh, I work with uh, governments um, because of my expertise on narrative and my understanding of these new kind of nonlinear um, uh, uh, cascading narratives and self-organized uh, social systems. You know, I get to work with uh, governments around the world to talk to them about what goes into aspirational narratives and getting people to self-organize around uh, a common values that are non-zero-sum gains, <laughs> win-win uh, situations, and, uh, and activating people around those ideas in, in, uh, in positive ways, in ways that are not rivalrous, but have more to do with, uh, with making things better for, for the most uh, human beings. And, uh, and that's really, really been uh, deeply satisfying. That's wonderful. So you're looking at, at politics with cinema and, and film, and you're bringing those narratives from film and back into politics. What a wonderful kind of symbiosis. Yeah. It's like you are an Ultraman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>